tonight on Arena. After Sun, Aisha and Armageddon Time with the movies up for review and Max Porter and Emer McBride on their contributions to the latest edition of Tolka. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena this Thursday night on Arena. All the film reviews are brought to you courtesy of the letter A. In Aftersun, Paul Meskel plays Callum, dedicated single father, who is determined to give his preteen daughter a good holiday in Turkey while keeping his struggles to himself. We spoke to Frank Berry and Joshua Connor last week about their new film, Aisha, which was filmed here in Dublin last year. It stars Letitia Wright, she of Black Panther fame, as a young woman caught up in the vagaries of Ireland's direct provision system. And in Armageddon time, director James Gray has created a coming-of-age story set in 1980s America starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong and a scene-stealing Anthony Hopkins. Will all three films make it onto the A-list of our reviewers this evening? Which in- who are Angela, <laughs> Flannery <laughs> and poor old John McGuire. Yeah, the awkward yeah. squad, yeah, the awkward <laughs> yeah, squad. Yeah. yeah, you and me, John, both in the, in the non-A category non-A. in this particular evening. Let us start with After Sun. Uh, starring Paul Meskel as a separated dad, uh, Callum, and newcomer Frankie Corio as a, uh, as Callum's daughter, Sophie. Feature debut of Charlotte Wells, and already it's growing great guns on the festival circuit, picking up nominations and awards at Cannes in May. Angela, maybe you could start by giving us a sense of who Sophie and Callum are and where they are when we meet them. Yeah, so... Um Sophie, uh, played by Frankie Corio, is an 11-year-old girl and she is on her way to Turkey on a package holiday with her dad Callum, who has, I think, just turned 30 in it. And he's treating her to a package holiday and it's just the two of them heading off. Um, He has very little money and he's quite nervy and she's quite sassy and there's great rapport between them. And... Yeah, I had no idea where it was going to go and I wasn't expecting it to go where it went. I knew yeah. nothing about this film before I went to see it. Yeah, which, so, is, often, which yeah. is often a good way to go into a film, John, mm. yeah, knowing little, absolutely little or nothing about I'd it. I'd be tempted, Sean, to leave it at that in terms of plot and story because, like you say... I uh, wouldn't, John, because <laughs> no, I want the listeners to know what it's about. But at the same time, I don't want to say too much yeah, about it because it's so delicate and yeah. ephemeral and... It's it's one of those films that's best experienced when you know very little about it going in and you have no expectations because it's a film about memory and memory is a slippy, trickery, tricky thing and mm. it's so hard to get a grasp on it. And it's about that elusiveness and the mutability of the things that we remember in this story that's being recalled 20 odd years later when the young girl is now about the same age as Meskel's character would have been, about 30, yeah. looking back on really what was going on and trying to figure out in her own mind. Yeah, and I mean, sufficient without giving anything away to say that uh, because Charlotte uh, Wells, who is a director, has told told us this and uh, that it was a picture of herself on a holiday with her father that kind of sparked this yeah. film uh, and, and it goes on from there. However, Paul Meskel... Yes, this is Paul Meskel of Normal People fame, of O'Neill Shorts fame and of Chain fame. Here he is doing and talking about a little bit of dad dancing. (laughs) (laughs) 
Last night, time for a dance? I don't dance. Sophie. I never, ever dance. Okay, I'm dancing with or without you. I told you, I love to dance. Dance. Stop. So embarrassing. Which is embarrassing. So there you go, Paul Meskel in After Sun. <laughs> Under no pressure at all, it has to be said, when he was doing that dad dancing John McGuire. Not at all afraid as mm. an actor. And now he's an actor. Why would he be afraid? He's not afraid to make an idiot out of himself and to show the, that side of this character. It's so natural. It's sometimes when you're watching films like this where you have uh, an established actor and a newcomer and you can feel the rehearsal, you can feel the workshop, you can feel the time that they would have spent together developing character. You get no sense of that here with Aftersun. It feels very fresh, it feels very natural, it feels very alive as you're watching it. And the relationship, the rapport that the two of them build, uh, that intimacy as they explore the mm. bond between parent and child that, you know, there's moments in it that'll make you catch your breath. I mean, they really have an extraordinary immediacy between the two of them as you're watching the film. Yes, and I... it builds over mm. time. It the her Wells' control of that of those two performances builds to something that's really very profound and very moving. Yeah, um, and, and Angela, I mean, John pointing out, and I think you had said it as well, it's, it's what happens between, it's the chemistry between the father-daughter character here is kind of at the very heart of the film, but also the way in which Charlotte Wells shows us the film. John mentioned this slipperiness of, of memory, and it's almost fragmented at time where, times we're in a disco with the, you know, flashing light back and forth. And you, you quite a, I find myself quite disorientated and not knowing where I was. Is that effective? Is it a good thing to feel that? Yeah, disorientated is exactly how I felt by, about it. I mean, at the, it, it, it starts with, um, you know, sort of camcorder footage that's all shaky and you realise oh, it's a child mm. holding the camera and then this happens quite a lot through the through the film that um, you have these sort of fragmented shots where Sophie's holding the camera and then it they cut away and then you're in real time you know the scene continues in real time and then the angles are really strange the camera angles then you know we see them from above and from below there's a lot of silence there's a lot of sort of shots you know expansive shots of um, winds um, surfers um, in the, you know, just the sky and stuff like that and landscape shots. So it really is kind of an interesting mix. Um, and then strange dreamlike sequences where we we see flashes of adult Sophie dancing mm. with Callum, her dad, and trying to reach him and he pulls away, you know. And then also we realise at other times that she, well, what's happening is Sophie as an adult is actually re, is watching this footage from their holidays because we see her face in a TV screen. So all of this probably makes it sound like very difficult viewing, but it isn't, you know. I mean, there's no mm. plot to speak of in this. And once you kind of give into it and you just go along with it, it's a really kind of really deeply moving, yeah. um, very intimate. Like at times you kind of felt, am I supposed to be watching this? Because as John said, it feels so authentic. I was very interested yeah. to listen to Paul Maskell talking about, um, 
you know, the time that he'd spent with Frankie Corio and how had they built this bond together yeah. and just spending two weeks around each other because they actually, you know, and and it happens in, in the film as well because he's so young. Like she's 11 and he's just turned 30 and characters that they encounter in Turkey assume that he's her older yeah. brother. Mm. And they, you know, there's that kind of closeness yes. and protectiveness there I, that um, it's, it's very easy to imagine him as a young dad. Yeah, and, 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 and not only that, but we should give credit here to Frankie Corio. She's a, mm. this is an astonish, an astonishing debut, John. She it is a superb performance from a very young actor. And what is what the character that Corio plays is being asked to do is to kind of fill in the gaps in her knowledge, not only of her life as she has been mm. as she's been played it as a as an eleven year old where she hangs out with a group of older teenagers and she discovers some things, but also she has to wonder about this man, this kind of lonely, cheerful man. Uh, who mm. her father, who seems to be carrying this burden that he can't comfortably bear anymore, he can't express any of that to her. But she's yeah. picking up all the clues and all the suggestions. And and finally, Angela, uh, you know, I, I did it. Uh, when anybody mentions Paul Mescal, O'Neill shorts and chains are going not going to be too far behind because of the impact that normal people had, particularly in in this part of the world. He's making phenomenal choices post normal people. Yeah, I, absolutely. He he is really, and you know, you could imagine him seeing out his twenties playing the love interest, and there'd be plenty of people going to see him mm. in that role. But I think you know, I mean, I was surprised to see him in the Lost Daughter, um, and I thought you know he was excellent in that. But this is in another league entirely. Yeah. So you know, the choices that he's making or his agents are making are really, really interesting. He's you know just astonishing in this, and it's so controlled and so nuanced, and um. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. I was yeah. really moved, really, really affected by this yeah. film for days afterwards. Best type of acting is the acting that you don't see happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, stars from you, Angela, first. Oh, five, absolutely. The full five, John. Uh, four from each, John. Gone four, four, uh, four on that. So very strong star rating indeed for the first of our films, After Sun. Let's move on then to Frank Berry's Aisha, a young woman finds connection with a staff member in the direct provision system. The film stars Letitia Wright as Aisha and Josh O'Connor, who spoke to us last week uh, and who you may know from his Emmy Award winning role as Prince Charles season three and four of The Crown. Um, For anyone hoping here, uh, John, to get, uh, you know, some kind of inspiring story about the triumph of the individual over the terrible system and, you know, overcoming all these obstacles... That Frank Berry ain't going to give you that. No, no. Yeah, adjust your expectations. It's not that triumph of the human spirit. It's not that victory for the little person over the vast, uncaring bureaucracy. That's not the story that Berry is telling. Those stories, Sean, are vanishingly rare in real life, however much we'd like to delude ourselves. Mm. And they're seldom honest. And Asia is instead a much scarcer and more powerful thing. It's the truth of the situation. Berry is probably our foremost social realist filmmaker. He's established a reputation over very quickly over two films. Uh, he, I, I Used to Live Here was a film that he developed with, with uh, workshops with youth, youth workers in mm. Tala that examined the phenomenon of suicide clusters. The follow-up was Michael Inside, which was uh, a story about the Irish penal system and how young offenders are treated in it. And it hewed very closely to the reality of that and again was based on first-person testimonies. And now with Aisha, this is a story about direct provision. Yeah. It's about a young woman from Nigeria fleeing violence in her home country, living in direct provision in Ireland and hoping for international protection. 
And and um, Angela, then what? The, that's at the heart. That is the story that we're following for the most part. But as a sidebar to that, in some ways, we we get this relationship with the uh, the Josh O'Connor character, who's called Connor, I think, isn't he? Um, they, we get it. We get that relationship growing between them. He's a security guard in the particular facility where she is. How how does that relationship develop, and what does it add to the story we're being told? Yeah, so I suppose this kind of gives it, you know, human interest. I thought it was going to go as a romance. That was my immediate mm. suspicion. And it doesn't, which is a relief. It does not happen, you know. So an unlikely friendship develops between Connor and Aisha. He gets a job as a night security man in this direct provision centre that she's in initially in Dublin. And um he is, you know, an unusual, the last kind of person you'd expect to be a security guard. You know, he's quite shy and nervous and... Um, and has a past of his own as well. Has a past of his own. You know, I mean, this is a young man that, you know, has struggled with addiction. He's been in prison. Um, he has suffered abuse. All of this, come, you know, comes out during the film. I mean, it's not the kind of film where you talk about spoilers because it's almost like a documentary. Yeah. But when he and Aisha, when she eventually, because she's very wary of him, when she eventually sort of starts to begin to trust him, a really strong bond builds between them. And, um, you know, he wants to help her and he wants to support her. And it, it um, yeah, it's it, it works really, really well. Yeah. And it works really well because the central performances in this from O'Connor and Roger just... Incredible. I mean, we're talking about chemistry all the time, but this is another one of those yeah. films mm, yeah. where the, the chemistry between them is just really extraordinary. Well, let's have a listen to... Uh, this is one of the first chances they get in the film to have a, a proper conversation with each other. Josh O'Connor is the actor here. <laughs> just listen to his accent as he talks to mm-hmm. Letitia Wright in, in the direct uh, provision uh, facility where she is. I don't know why he can't get you to the film. Costs more. Less profit for him. Have you heard from that family? Or just do what I'm told? Could they have done it without you? How long were they here? Five years. Where are they now? In a detention centre in the UK. I didn't know I'd be doing stuff like that. Normally just do offices and warehouses. I told not to talk to you, so I don't know if he's know that. So he's don't try to get us to break the rules or whatever. So why are you talking to me? That's Letitia Wright and Josh O'Connor in a scene from Frank Berry's Aisha. And I said, when Josh O'Connor was on to us, I asked him, what part of Dublin are you from, Josh, originally? <laughs> I mean, the accent, and I know yeah. people get hung up on accents, but if, you, if you're hearing the accent done badly, it's going to wreck the film on you. Yeah, yeah. He's, this is just part of the authenticity of what he's doing, John. That's it, yeah, but it's not just that, but it's his expression, it's the way he holds himself, it's his demeanour, all of that speaks, all the stuff about the character you find out just by looking mm. at him. And that's Barry's particular skill, is that he doesn't want to sit down and give you a lecture, he doesn't want to explain everything to mm. you. He doesn't give his characters reams of dialogue to, you know, go pour over every tiny detail in this story, which is a very complicated story. And direct provision is an incredibly complicated and controversial subject in Ireland. But he doesn't want to have to do that. Berry's style is to be as invisible as possible. He doesn't draw attention to himself. He, everything is a 
very simple camera setup. There's minimal editing. We follow them and we're being told by, you know, gestures and expressions and the things, the small things that they are saying to each other. We're being told about character all the time. And there are some artful contributions from Tom Comerford, who's the cinematographer on it but this is an unshowy film it's yeah. about observation and that its primary function is to reflect the reality Barry is as much of a journalist and documentarian as he is a filmmaker but also to to service the story yeah and, uh, and, does, and that's really really appealing yeah and it, it's a difficult one to do because does he manage does Frank Barry manage within the telling of the story Angela to give us a nuanced view of the direct provision system or is it a critique that he just he, he knocks it down and has nothing positive to say about it at all um, no, I think he very carefully balances, you know, I mean, the, the manager of the first direct provision centre that Aisha is in, I mean, there's very little to redeem him. He's a real jobs worth and mm. he does appear to be making money from it. But then when she goes on to the next one, um, the manager there has more sympathy for her. And you do, I mean, you know, it's not, nothing is black and white in this. And I think that, you know, um, I agree with John about... Um, his skill as a filmmaker. I mean, you can tell that there's been five or six years of research that's gone into yeah, this. Yeah, he told and me he started his... it mm. at the time of Michael Inside about seven years ago. In fact, mm. I think he's been looking at it since, sort of, you know, 2017, 2016, something like that. Yeah, and when you have, you know, a process like that, you know, which is his process as a director where there is just so much research and interviews that are done. And I really liked the way that he manages to, I mean, it does feel sometimes like a fly in the wall documentary, but I really liked where he manages to bring in non-actors, uh, women who have uh, been in direct provision and to work their testimony into the dramatic narrative where they sit there and Aisha does their hair and their makeup in the direct provision centre. And these are non-actors telling their story. And I did hear um, snippets of the interview that you, you had done with him. And, you know, the, that... Um, I thought it was interesting that he said, like, of all of the, the interviews and the listening that he was doing, that, you know, people kept telling him the same story until yeah. a pattern emerged. And that was how he knew yeah. that what he was saying, you know, and, and what was coming across was authentic well, and let's listen, was accurate. Let's listen to a scene that really taps into that authenticity, because in this case, it feels as if he, he literally, but Frank Berry put the camera on these women who tell their own stories direct to Letitia Wright, who's Letitia Wright is in character at this point, but the women who are telling the stories are simply telling their own stories. When I came, we were not allowed to have microwave, fridge, uh, cookers and all that, you know, and so I, how, if I buy a lollipop for my child, where am I going to put it? If he wants, I slowly, where am I going to put it? You know, such things. I would love to buy it, but I can't. The only time they'll give it to you in the hostel, it's when they buy it on that particular day, you know? How do I explain that to my child? I want to provide for my child. I want to work, I'm not allowed to work. I want to study, I'm not allowed to study. You know, such things, it's just a lot. Deportation is the painful thing ever. You're thinking, okay, I've been tortured back home. I came here for safety. And then I was traumatized inside these little rooms where I was living in a little prison now that I have to be free, I'm told that I am being deported. You know, mm. it's so, so painful. And I've seen people going through that. 
And mm. that's a scene from uh, Frank Berry's Aisha. And as Frank Berry told me on the night, those women were simply telling him their own stories. Letitia Wright is in character re- responding and, and, and reacting to that, which, which brings a whole new set of skills. But for you, John, how, how, how does Frank Berry handle, overall, how does he handle this difficult subject? And does, does he present us with solutions or how does he leave it for us? I, I I don't want to spoil the film. No, but don't I, tell us what this happens. Is a very, no. You know, this is an ambig. There is an ambiguous ending. We 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 don't mm. follow uh, Aisha all the way to the end of her story, uh, but Barry has established himself. Uh, he has a reputation for telling the truth, and if this is how he presents the experience of direct provision for those people who are unfortunate enough to live in direct provision in this country and have been for the last 20 odd years. I trust it to be the situation as it is experienced by those people. He has that reputation for telling the truth and for being honest. And I don't see any inflection. There is no editorial. There is no. He's not trying to manipulate this material mm. to, in order to bring us to a certain point of rage or acceptance or anything else. And he's not trying to romanticise it in any way. It is just the way it is. Yeah. And I think that's incredibly important. Um, I think you had a sense of shame watching this film, Angela. Yeah, I did. But I mean, I get that every time we talk about direct provision because we've been, you know, it's been going on now for 20 years. And I mean, just last week, the government announced that they're going to renege on their promise to end it by 2024. But I did feel the Frank Berry's done a really incredible job here. And, you know, I know from working for years as a journalist how notoriously difficult it is for journalists to get access to direct provision centres. And that doesn't even take into account Mm. building trust with the people who live there. So they'll tell you um, their story. So it feels like this story was going to be told by this means or no means at all and I think he's done an incredible thing and because he's got you know big names as actors in this and Josh O'Connor and Letitia Wright you know the whole world is going to turn around and look at Ireland now and it's not the Ireland that they see in other films so I do think that you know maybe 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 somebody will sit up yeah. and watch this and make changes it's a really important film it's and it is really well made Josh O'Connor to me ah, is extraordinary yeah, great. mother of God I didn't know it was him you <laughs> yeah. know I watched all the crown like I know that he was Charles in the crown and about 20 minutes into it I was going because I thought I was like I know this actor was he in couldn't be in love hey he's too young for that I couldn't get I couldn't figure out who he was yeah. he inhabits the character yeah. so his accent is just extraordinary just an amazing performance but apart from that it's a very important film I, and I mean for me an absolute five star film I was yeah. thinking I could guess your stars as, as five in fact he told me that he learned the accent Dublin was in lockdown when he was here for the initial period but then when he got out onto the streets he just met this guy whose name I think was Dave I'm pretty certain and, and he, he befriended him and he got the accent that's how he got the accent and he has that 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 great authenticity within it. Overall, John, um, a, a star rating. Four, four for me. Uh, I, I, I had minor, minor problems, minor, minor problems. But this is, like Angela has just said, this is a very important film. And that, that's a cliche almost to say important, mm. necessary. You know, you see it on posters and things like that. In this case, it's the truth and the film is the truth. So... Yeah, okay, so top marks once again, almost there for Aisha and Frank Perry. And finally then, let us move on to Armageddon time. Director James Gray takes us to the Queens of 1980. A young boy is growing up and learning about the real world and how to navigate it with integrity. I suppose in some ways we're talking about something similar to After Sun here. Armageddon Time is a movie built by an adult bringing a deeper understanding to memories of the past, story of childhood, innocence and and remembering back with regret uh, what what has gone on then. Angela, tell us about the the main character, Paul Graff, played by Banks Rapetta. 
Yeah, so Paul Graff is an 11-year-old boy who is growing up in Queens. Uh, he's got an older brother and he's from a uh, Jewish-American family. Both sides of his parents are um, descend well, descended their second or third generation Jewish immigrants. And he's going to a public school um, in Queens where he is frankly a bit of a brat, a bit of a smart arse. Mm. He's not really focusing on his studies and his parents want their kids to get on. They want a place at the table. It's that immigrant American dream kind of story. But Paul is having none of this. Paul wants to be an artist and uh, spends his time drawing rockets and sort of, you know, making wise cracks and being disobedient. And the person that can get, you know, sense into him and who he really connects with is his grandfather, Aaron, who's played by um, Hopkins. Anthony, Anthony Hopkins. Hopkins. Yeah. Now, here we are and with all the A's again. I'm going to go to John. <laughs> with Aaron like Sesame Street, John. Yeah, there's a bit of that going on this evening for sure. Uh, Anthony Hopkins play, playing the grandfather. He's the star of the film for you, uh, John. Absolutely. At the age of 84, this is a fantastic performance. More emotion and feeling and expression in the few scenes that he has than all the other actors combined. And there are some very, very good actors mm. in this. Jeremy Strong, Anne Hathaway, even the kid, Banks Repita, uh, Repetta, however you pronounce it. I thought Jalen Webb, who's his friend, his only friend, really, Johnny, who's this poor black kid who's struggling at school and living with his elderly grandmother. And you know, that rebellion that they have against the rules laid down by the family and the school and the wider world. And it's all kind of classic coming-of-age material. An attempt, Gray's attempt, to capture his own youth and the essence of it and the times that they were living in in the early 1980s in New York through this story of a boy's, yeah. you know, journey to manhood, I right. suppose is what yeah. you'd call it. It's, it's, a, it's a classic Jewish yeah. story as well. Let's listen to uh, Anthony Hopkins in action here. Um, with a little bit of strong language along the way, it has to be said, as Paul's grandfather, uh, and he's explaining how to deal with the kind of difficult things that might come in front of uh, Banks Repeater or Repeater as Paul. So how are you doing? How things at the new school? Mm. Something's bugging you. What is it? Sometimes kids say stuff. Kids say stuff, yeah, they do. But like what kind of stuff? Say stuff like about other kids. Well, come on, come on, I can't hear you. Well, they'll just say stuff about other kids. Like what? Well, they'll say bad words about the black kids. Oh, yeah? Yeah, okay. And uh, what do you do when that happens? Come on, tell me. Obviously, nothing, of course. Nothing, of course, yeah. You think that's funny? You think that's smart? I'll tell you what I think. I think that's a crock of old horse. I'm going to tell you now, you've got to do something. You've got to say something, OK? Do you know why? Because you're on the ball, right? Come on, man. You raised better than that. Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you something. I've learned over the years, those bastards who say all that crap and garbage to your face will say the same stuff behind your back. And they'll shove a knife straight in your gut. And they'll smile as they do it. You remember one thing. Next time those schmucks say anything bad about those black kids or those Hispanics, you be a mensch to those kids, okay? They never had your advantage. Give me a handshake. You're gonna be a mensch, okay? Firm handshake. Okay, give me a hug. Love you. Love you too. There you go. Grandfather and grandson, uh, Banks Repetta and Anthony Hopkins. But Angela, I think uh, as well as the, the performance by Hopkins, Paul's father, Irving, who's played by Jeremy Strong, uh, that's one of the more interesting characters for you. 
Yeah, it is one of the more interesting characters because, you know, you think you're getting one thing with him, but then his character arc is one of the more interesting ones. He reveals, you know, I mean, he could, mm. there's some scenes in it that are quite violent and you're like, oh my God, you know, he's a pressure cooker. He's just under each, everything has to be, my my two sons have to get on, have to get on and all of this. And then you realise that actually no underneath it all, you know, that he yeah. actually has a wisdom and a, you know, and, and a strong sense of social justice, but that's just not the way things work for people who are trying to to rise up into the middle class in America. There's two scenes, both of them happen in the family car where, um, you know, I, I just thought that his performance, that Jeremy yeah. Strong's performance as Irving Brief, was Briefly, was really John, in, in a couple of sentences, we do get a, a representation of the Trump family here. We do. We meet the Trumps. We meet Fred Trump, who'd be Donald Trump's father, and we meet who would have been his sister, Marianne Trump, who's played by Jessica Chastain. And we see a lot of Reagan on TV. It's during the, it's during yeah, the election, for Reagan's first uh, election. And we see a lot of Reagan on TV. And it's the Trumps and Reagan and that representation of capitalism, essentially, and the American dream on one side of the coin. And then you have the yeah. Jewish immigrant experience on the other, particularly Hopkins. That speech that Hopkins just gave is the absolute antithesis to what right. Paul is hearing all the time. But somewhere in the middle, there's a movie. But I don't, I don't know. Didn't fully work. It didn't work for me. Yeah. There's Stars three. overall, John? Three for me. I wish it was Hopkins film. I wish it was just right. Hopkins. Angela, I think you're possibly in, in better form on this one. Yeah, I mean, I kind of generously am going for four, but I really had an issue with sort of shoehorning the Trumps in. I felt yeah. like they didn't belong in this film at all, that it was far too heavy handed and that without them, it would have been a stronger film because there's some great performances in it. And yeah, Hopkins in particular. I mean, I think uh, we said this about the father. We're like, how many more of these amazing performances has he got in him? Yeah, it's just so exciting yeah. to Several see them coming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so three and four respectively then for Armageddon time. Thanks to Angela Flannery and John McGuire for those reviews this evening Armageddon time goes on general release this weekend Aisha opens this weekend too and then goes on to Sky Cinema and After Sun releases in cinemas nationwide tomorrow In April 2021 we spoke with Catherine Hearns one of the three editors of Tolka brand new Irish literary journal set up to promote and I quote formally formally I beg your pardon formally promiscuous non-fiction the biannual magazine has just published its fourth issue and if the essays by my next guests are anything to go by Tolka is delivering on its promise in spades Emer McBride and Max Porter best known for their fiction perhaps including in Emer's case the novel The Girl is a Half-Formed Thing while Max is the author of Grief's a Thing with feathers among others so it's not surprising that authors who play with form in their fiction should do the same in not non-fiction delighted that uh, both Emer McBride and Max Porter join me on the programme this evening I just love that as a pitch Emer uh, would you like to write a piece of formally promiscuous non-fiction it's a great pitch I'm guessing when it comes to you as an author well, I mean, it's pretty hard to uh, to turn down formally promiscuous anything. And when it comes to writing, I mean, I'm definitely the woman for that. Uh, so, yeah, for me, it was impossible to say no. Yeah. And, and I guess the particular topic that you were that you chose to write about or personally, I suppose, in some ways, uh, Neve O'Malley, the, the artist uh, exhibited at this year's um, Venice Biennale, that that helped along with being formally promiscuous. Well, you know, I mean, obviously it was very, you know, flattering to be asked by by Neve to write something in response to her her Biennale uh, exhibition, and uh, that kind of, you know, 
set me off on promiscuous turns I hadn't gone before. And uh, so, you know, Tolka seemed like a great place to uh, to publish it. And they've actually they put in a really beautiful uh, postcard along with the with the magazine of of one of Neve's pieces from the from the exhibition. Um, so, yeah, it was coming at made, me from all angles, I think. Made a lot of sense. Similarly, Max, um, I mean, I've said it to, about your fiction. It all it, for me, it has that kind of formal running around the house, avoiding loss any form that might try to grapple and pull it down and allowing itself to, to blossom out in, in other ways. I'm guessing the pitch to you of formerly promiscuous nonfiction was equally as exciting as it was for Emer. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And, and, um, and especially, you know, because, uh, like in Emer's piece, that, you know, the travel between l- l- thinking about ways of writing about the visual arts, a piece of sculpture. Uh, in, in this case, I was writing what was fundamentally a political piece, but I wrote it in its first iteration as a piece of performance, uh, you know, as a script, a kind of multi-voice piece. So to try and think about translating that back into a, into a written piece, um, yeah, uh, uh, irresistible invitation, definitely. Yeah, and Emer's uh, speaking, I suppose, in a very positive way about Neve O'Malley's work. You are certainly not in in a positive mood when it comes to anything to do with the arms industry. No. Well, did did that come across in the piece? Yeah, it? I kind of picked it up in one or two spots. Yeah. No, I. This is a thing for me of long standing as you know, as a pacifist and someone that that um, disagrees with 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 the a great you know with it, with that industry for a mm. long time. That that one thinks you know how will I write about that without kind of uh, without muting it? With you know how 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 is rage as a vehicle? What, what what would rage look like as a kind of set of formal decisions? Um, would I do that using my own voice? Would I employ the voice of others? Would I need to just simply talk about the industrial or moral angle? Or would you know would there perhaps be a way of including you know d- domesticity or the you know the banality of men, of school dads chatting at the school gate and those sorts of things. Um, so yeah the, the promiscuity of, of, of the kind of um, non-fiction experimentation mm. really suited this this piece yeah. Uh, your piece is called Wild West um, there's an I who says at one point I am fulfilled. Who are we speaking to or who, who are we hearing there? There you're hearing from the well-paid um um, sort of, um, how would you say, kind of morally decapitated, mm. you know, moral compass fully suspended, um, <laughs> sen- senior employee of of, of an organisation mm. that manufactures in this country uh, weapons that are sold um, to other countries to drop on on civilians. So a, a sort of um, a sort of artificial straw man in the argument against the industry, um, but one fleshed out with kind of real 21st century uh, white goods watches. You know, health and fitness habits, psychosexual ticks, <laughs> all all the things that we all carry around. Um, but that is what he does for a living, and he is fulfilled. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll come back to to you in in a second, Emer Tip, because I want you to read as well. But maybe Max, you could read a section from Wild West, because I think what you've told us there kind of sets up this section that you've chosen quite well for us. Yeah, and and I'll 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 just give you the the characters from the previous bit of that. Yeah. Um, have you met Oscar's dad? He designed the Spearfish Heavyweight Torpedo, basically a global benchmark for underwater advantage. Have you met Caroline? 
She's after winter coats, toys, women's hygiene products, and she's happy to come and pick them up. Have you watched these two characters slip into each other, thin membranes giving in and seen the British psychopathology wiggle on the tarmac begging for a break from the invasions of others, the guilt, the boredom or horror begging for regime change or electoral reform or private property or cheaper holidays or justice or water or thought caught merged unfixed spilling their wants in a wet hurry because they believe it's about to happen quick we were unprepared the will is in the kitchen tell my children sorry every bit of blood and fire metal law starvation and pain is being flung back at us order restored and a calm voice speaks from the shallow sky that the process might take anything up to six months so please hang up and try again later now the game like Sorry, Worrying Now, a power game compartmentalised into part you and part me like a farce, which is kind of like culture, which is pure rigged trance, like a dice game, like Yahtzee, when the bomber's voice slides into the voice of the bombie and the man behind the desk in the suit becomes the woe-is-me applicant, as well as the morally impoverished referee, the unhinged boss, as well as the machine part underling, shuffling, qualmed and comfy to the pension pot, the banality of evil figurine, victim and aggressor sewed grotesquely into one voice in order to ask who is getting away scot-free Max Porter reading from his essay Wild West which is part of the latest edition of Talca Max uh, on the phone with me this evening as is Emer McBride and Emer we, we certainly get a sense from listening to Max there that there's a fair amount of anger and annoyance in, in what he's writing about that's a great motivator. When it came to writing about uh, about Neva Mali and and her work in your essay, which is called "Quark" or "Up Down Charmed Strange Top and Bottom," which is a beautiful title, I have to say. Um, how how is it a different set of emotions when you're writing? I don't know if admiration is the right word to use, but that's what comes across. That there's there's a kind of an homage to what uh, Neve is doing or was doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, it's really going after something very different. Uh, you know, Neve wanted me. She she had uh, some other, you know, critical writers mm. uh, contributing to her uh, catalogue and she wanted me to respond in a more sort of abstract way. Um, and so for me, it was really about trying to find language that in some way embodied what, uh, you know, the impression that her work made on me. And... Uh, I suppose it was it was you know it's far far away from any kind of uh, political argument. It's more about you know getting right down to the nuts and bolts mm. of energy and interaction and and so uh, quark sort of came to me because you know it's an it's an elemental particle and and no kind of matter is is um, can exist without it. I think I'm obviously not that great on the physics, <laughs> but. From what Wikipedia said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, the, you know, this seemed to me really to kind of, you know, speak to the energy and, and the excitement mm. and, the, and the beauty and the complexity of Neve's work that, you know, she's she's not kind of putting anything out there as a statement, but more as a, an inver- yeah. invitation to explore. And, and, and so I tried to mirror that, I suppose, in, in what I was writing. Yeah, and I guess... Um... <laughs> Again, with the help of Wikipedia, this is not my physics degree jumping out of my mouth. There are six types of quark, seemingly um, known as... Apparently fl- so. <laughs> they're called flavours, and that's where the title comes from. There's the up flavour, the down flavour, the charm flavour, the strange flavour, the top flavour, and the bottom flavour. 
that's as much well, as I know did. about quarks. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's probably the best that can be said for any of us, right? So, <laughs> would you, would you perfectly human? And obviously, there's a playfulness in what you're doing here as well, Emer. And I think that's that's uh, that's part of what what you're at playing with the language as much yeah. as anything else. Will you read a section for us? Um, I, I guess the the physics lesson is probably enough of a context for us, is it? I think I think it probably is, and it's maybe worth adding only that uh, uh, the, the man who who uh, discovered the quark, Murray Gelman, uh, chose the name from Finnegan's Wake. So ah. there's an extra. Ah, there's a word nice. he found in Finnegan's Wake. So uh, you know that adds a little extra to it. Of course. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I, I read a little bit from it now. Stood, it was never much harder to get to the tip prong spike or its point or its crux or those bits on the side or the light round the back or the tiniest suggestion that where it was located might or indeed might not be real real or reeling in as if reeling was anything to do with anything especially not ground and definitely not air particularly when they occupy so much of themselves and without inclination to spin wait rotate what wait on picking itself from all area adjacents and endeavouring in action wherever gravity grips so sedate and resistant to unintentional slips or the spreading of space somewhat thin but worth noting how even casually lent it lovingly hugs the flexions of its own tendons the corruptions of its sinews and wayward of its joints impermeable to air and immutable by earth it minds not one solitary thing Alas, digression though, from the point and the crux, air and ground, if they're still doing that, being the upside or downside of the majority of stuff, components, integrants, leaps of thought, backward inclinations when masses maraud, or the clock talks one then two, any number in fact, white face flat and thin hands black, although last time I looked, I saw time looking back, savouring its imposition and inescapable matter, which really is no matter at all. But here is not for that. Super, so there's the quarks. There's, there's <laughs> that super stuff. I, I'm actually marvelling. That's uh, Beamer uh, uh, McBride reading from her essay, Quark, or Up, Down, Charm, Strange, Top and Bottom, which is uh, her essay in the latest edition of Tolka, the f- formerly promiscuous non-fiction uh, journal published by uh, biannually. I'm marvelling at the quality of the performance given by both readers of their own work this evening. How much of that performative element is there for you, Emer, even at the stage of writing, or particularly in this piece, it strikes me? I mean, I think often for me, you know, the sound of the languages is as important or carries equal weight as, as the meaning. Mm. And uh, and so, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking to myself aloud in my office and often, in fact, find it quite hard to write an email in the street without humming <laughs> along with it. Um, so for me, the you know, the, the kind of the language and, and trying to, to make it performative is, you know, it's a huge part of the whole process. Well, I sincerely hope the next time you're sending an email this way that you'll send a voicemail with it, reading the email <laughs> with, those, with, the, with, the, with the music along with it. And, and of course, Max, you said to us that your piece had started life as a performance piece. And then was there a lot of transformation to get it back onto the page? What did you have to do to change it? Well, you have to, there's a certain letting go, you know. Um, uh, you know, you, there's a certain amount of, of trusting that the reader is going to animate some of those voices for themselves, um, which I which I enjoy. I like their collaborative uh, relationship with with the reader in that way. But you know, how 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 can I tell my reader to 
to get exactly the the, the right kind of smug <laughs> nasal English executive voice um, that I had in mind. I can't. I have to let go. There's a certain kind of letting go. But then I, I like that because there's ambivalence. And one of the reasons, you know, we write is so that I'm in, in the prose. And, yeah. and I also think, you know, like it's a, always such a joy to hear Ema read her work. And it's been ages since, since I have had that that treat. But what one hopes is that our readers, to a certain extent, are are doing this, if not out loud, you know, naked yeah. in the bath then they're doing it in their heads they're doing it walking down the street that the musicality of the prose is is yeah. is uh, necessarily infectious you know and f- important to point out that it is non-fiction that both of you are writing and yet that formally that formal fun uh, can be had uh, there's loads more I could talk to both of you about but alas the clock is against it thanks so much for joining us uh, this evening that's both Eamor McBride and Max Porter both of whom have essays in the latest edition of Tulka it's available now and you can find out Full details on talkajournal.org. Elizabeth Cope is an Irish artist born in County Kildare and now resident in County Kilkenny, having exhibited in galleries and museums all over the world. She's back in Ireland and in the Midlands with a new exhibition at Visual in Carlo entitled The Palpable Bulb on the Bridge of the Nose. In the past, Elizabeth has described the act of painting as like doing a post-mortem. You're involved emotionally and yet detached at the same time. While the emotional impact of her current exhibition is there for anyone to see, with frank descriptions of childbirth, sex acts and organs, a body of work which, in its totality, addresses the changing state of a fe- of the female body. Elizabeth Cope joins me this evening on the programme. <laughs> Elizabeth, um, we're going to tweet some images as, as we go along uh, about as, yep. uh, what you're talking about here. What uh, exactly... What was this exhibition or does it do for you? What did you want from it? Well, I suppose the exhibition is really about paint itself because I actually paint every subject under the sun. I don't shy away from any subject. So to me, the exhibition is about paint. I I use paint, even if I'm painting a cadaver, you know, a dead body in the College of Surgeons or a piece of a formica chair, or somebody on the street, or a head, or a renewed, or a landscape. I treat everything equal, as equal. And what, what strikes me is it's, it's not just about then some kind of figurative painting, even though there are figures and recognisable figures within that. It seems to be that you're, you're going for something beyond that. Let us tweet an image called Birds and Other Animals at RTE Arena for people who want to see the image that uh, Elizabeth Cope is speaking to us about now. Yes. Layering and collaging really strike me as an important technique for you in this this exploration of paint, Elizabeth. I'll tell you, we go to a track and see if we can get uh, Elizabeth back up. We go for a track from Jesse Buckley who will be at the Folk Awards in a few minutes' time. She's staring out to sea Silence itself it's, uh, Jesse Buckley and Bernard Butler, one of the nominees for this evening's Folk Awards. We'll be handing over to them shortly. But we have Elizabeth Cope uh, back on the line now. I was talking... Hello, uh, uh, hi. I was talking about birds and other animals uh, and we have tweeted that at RTE Arena. Uh, how important is that collage, that layering technique in what you're expressing, Elizabeth? Well, this, this is just, um, I suppose um, it's, um, I, I have people in it as well. 
I have birds and um, mainly they're mainly birds and people, I suppose. And there's also, I think there might be even an octopus in it. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe I'm not sure about that. Uh, yes, the leading tower of Pisa is in it as well. But uh, I suppose um, in a way we're always trying to make everything tidy and neat. And as you know, John Cleese always used to say, well, we try to spend our lives not trying to make a show of ourselves, you know, which I find is funny. So I suppose sometimes making something wild like that is kind of an antidote to us trying always to make everything neat and tidy, which it never is. You know, we have a delusion mm. about things. You know, I think like painting on dumps and th things like that is very important because it gives you an overview of life, you know. Yeah. It's, um, and, and just, uh, uh, we, we, we've lost, we lost you briefly there. So let me just go to an important question to, to finish up our discussion, if I could, Elizabeth, which is around this idea that you have stated around that, that the changing state of that, of the female body, its sexuality, its corporeal, corporeality, is something that has traditionally been denied or ignored. Has that got to do with it's not it's not a tidy subject? Do you think people avoid it for that reason? Yes, I, I do think so. And uh, I think it's important for people to see the body parts. I, I'm not out to uh, upset people or anything. On the contrary. But at the same time, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, it, it's just, you know, when you're dealing with, say, an animal in a shed, a cow having a calf, like this, it's all the same, you know. There's nothing. There's no difference. It's it's life. All kinds of life is is moving along at the same time in different forms. Mm. And of course, you uh, grew up on a farm, and I think farming is still important in your life. Oh yes. Is it as yes. important as the painting? Absolutely. I mean, life is more important than art. Don't ever forget that. <laughs> and um, you know, um, I think farming is essential. You know, and. I'm trying to get people from Dublin down to come and see the exhibition, but people are so, they never want to leave beyond Newlands Cross, you know, and we can't get them back to the country. So we have to try and do that. But the, the, the farming never leaves you, you know. Um, one of the best things I ever did was the farm course because it, uh, my father was a dairy farmer and milking cows and all mm. of that. It's an incredibly important thing right. and a very dangerous thing. You know, farming is one of the most dangerous things, but... It gives you, uh, it keeps your feet on the ground right. in a way. Okay. And yet I like the city life as well. You know, I like the yeah. mixture. Oh, and it's all there within the paintings as well. And apologies that we could only get a chance to, to share one of them with you this evening. Uh, thanks for being with us. That's Elizabeth Cope and Elizabeth's current exhibition, The Palpable Bump on the Bridge of the Nose, is on display at Visual Arts Centre in Cairo. Full details on visualcarlo.ie. And that's our lot for this evening. Paula Shields, Liam Murphy, Claire Hogan, where the researchers, Amandine Passo Devine, was the broadcast coordinator. Sound supervision tonight was by Tommy O'Sullivan and tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. And now we go over to Vicker Street for this year's RTE Folk Awards with John Creedon.